Hello and welcome to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Off Campus History is all about popular portrayals of history. That is, representations of history in popular media or aimed at the general public. Apologies that this month's episode is a little later than usual. My computer died, which threw off my usual workflow. And to that end, this episode is more of an informal chat than our typical fare, but I think one that is still absolutely worth your time to listen. I'm joined by Kevin Winterhalt, previous off-campus history alumnus and PhD candidate at the University of Colorado Boulder. His research examines the intersection of professional sports and politics in the modern United States. Today, we chat about all things historical movies. When it comes to movies, what does historical accuracy really mean to us? What are some of the best historical films we've seen, and what are some of the worst? Also, we talk about some historical events and figures that we think would make for great movies. I think you're really going to enjoy my conversation with Kevin today. Let's get into it. All right. I'm excited to welcome back to the podcast, my very first returning guest for the podcast, Kevin Winterhalt. Kevin, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks for the uh, the return invitation, Lewis. I'm glad we didn't scare you off the first time. What have you been up to since the last time you were on the podcast? How's your work going? Well, I mean, lots of lots of the same in terms of still plugging away at, at CU Boulder, you know, slowly coming out of COVID. It's been, you know, able to do research trips again. So I was in... Uh, I was in Michigan over Thanksgiving for a few days at the Ford Library. Right. And I'm teaching a Cold War history class this semester. They just wrote their first exam yesterday. Oh, well, enjoy grading those, I suppose. How was the, how was the Ford Library? Tiny, you know, because we're talking about a president who was only in office for a couple of years. Right. You know, the Nixon Library is this gigantic play, you know, on tons of real estate and it's huge. And then... The Ford Library is just tucked away on the University of Michigan campus. You go in and, you know, the museum part is just one large open room. And then you go up some stairs and the reading room at the archive is is not much bigger than a university classroom. Right. That's interesting. I don't really have a lot of experience with the presidential library thing because they're obviously more of a 20th, 21st century thing. But I've encountered them a little bit over this summer I did visit the Jimmy Carter library for for the museum part. I was doing other research in Atlanta and my partner was also doing research at the Bill Clinton library over the summer in mm-hmm. Little Rock. I feel like I'm I'm sort of like learning about about and then, and then when I was in Boston, we visited the JFK presidential library just to sort of see again to see the museum not for the research. That one is huge as you might expect even though he was, you know, only in office for not a full term. The museum and things like that were huge. I feel like that would itself be a, an interesting podcast to talk about, but that's uh, not what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> today, we're going to chat about historical movies, just sort of broadly. I mean, my podcast obviously talks quite a bit about historical movies. A lot of the, the focus are are on movies, but I haven't really sat down to talk to somebody about like what makes a good historical movie in a broad sense. So that can maybe sort of be some of the what we're what we're going to talk about today. Before we get into that, I, I want to ask you, what's your favorite historical movie? So this was a tough one I thought about over the last couple of days when you you sent the, the set of questions. Yeah. And I've kind of thought about it in the sense of like three different streams or, or types of historical film. Hmm. The made for Hollywood type, which, you know, 
painting with a broad brush tend to be much less historically accurate and and more focused on the entertainment. Yeah. The ones that hew a little a little bit more closely to historical accuracy and they kind of like the docudrama, you know, your multi-part, you know, the John Adams documentary on HBO or some others mm-hmm. like that. And I think, you know, some of my favorites, this shouldn't surprise you cuz I'm a Cold War guy, <laughs> Bridge of Spies starring Tom Hanks. Okay. It's the story of the prisoner swap that involved the U-2 spy pilot who was shot down by the Soviets and a, and a Soviet spy that the Americans had caught. Even though that tends to be more of the Hollywood type, it's still really good. It takes some license with certain dramatic events that never actually happen in real life, but it's still really good. Mm-hmm. Hewing more closely to some historical accuracy. I don't know. Did you ever take Simone Horowitz's genocide class? No, no, I, I took, so yeah, people may not know, we did our undergrads together. Simone Horowitz was one of our professors. I didn't take that class with her. No, I had um, the uh, her methodology course, but not the mm. not her course on the history of genocide. So we watched a lot of film in that class. That was a weird semester because I was also in Katie LaBelle's history and film class. And then Ben Hoy showed a couple of films in his Borderlands class. I think I ended up watching like 11 films that semester. Oh, wow. <laughs> but Rabbit Proof Fences, which is the movie about the indigenous genocide in Australia is, is really, really good. There seems to be something about genocide that they make pretty solid movies about them. Even though Hotel Rwanda, again, is for a, a public audience, that yeah. one's pretty solid. And then, I mean, Schindler's List is iconic at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. I have to imagine that if you're a filmmaker making a movie about a genocide you feel more of a sense of an obligation to get the story right, right? Like, it's it's easy, I think, for a filmmaker to take liberties with a story that feels kind of light. For a story that has a lot of weight and emotional consequence and, like, led to the, like, deaths of however many people, you probably feel like you have to stay accurate. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, I was thinking about this in terms of, like, what my favorite historical movies are or at least at least which ones i think are the best historical movies because there's a lot of movies from when i was a kid that i enjoyed a lot and probably are part of why i'm interested in history that looking back on them i'm like those are not very good history movies right like you know i as a kid i loved braveheart or the pirates of the caribbean movies i i really like those those are not very good history movies but thinking about it now one and i, I think our our lists reflect some of our interests. Lincoln is one that I I really like. The Daniel Day-Lewis movie that came out about 10 years ago, I think. Sounds right. Yeah. And that one's that one's quite good, right? It's sort of a a political drama about Lincoln cajoling members of Congress to vote for the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery. And so they introduce a lot of drama into it for a story that, you know, I bet a lot of people you tell them the movie is about a piece of legislation passing, they probably roll their eyes. It's a very exciting movie. It's very it's very good. I also remember, thought I thought that the movie The Free State of Jones was really good. I haven't seen that one in a few years, but that's a movie about a group of Southerners during the Civil War who essentially attempt to secede from the Confederacy and fight their own little guerrilla war against the Confederacy. But what I thought the movie did really well was... It did a good job of connecting what happens during the war to what happens after the war, which I think is often an issue with Civil War stuff in general. Not even just movies, but I think actually 
academic writing even. Sometimes the line is drawn at like 1865 and then it's sort of story over. And so this movie really does a good job of showing what happens during Reconstruction and then how all of this sort of relates to segregation issues and things like that in in the mid 20th century. So that was a movie that I thought was very good. I haven't seen it since it came out, so I don't I don't remember it super well, but I remember thinking that was very good. Yeah, I, I thinking about, you know, the the films that we watched before getting into the academy and so many of these, you know, for lack lack of a better phrase, they're not they're they're historical, you know, historical fiction, I guess for a lot of them. But, you know, Gladiator goes out and wins, you know, an Academy Award for Best Picture, if I'm not, mis- if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. And everybody decides they have to do the long, ponderous historical epics. And, you know, right. we we get Kingdom of Heaven and King Arthur and Troy and Master and Commander. And, you know, we, we really saturated that that market. And some of them were some of them were good and others not so much. I remember watching Kingdom of Heaven and being like, okay, that was fine. It wasn't mm-hmm. great. Until I found out that there was a director's cut that filled in about 45 minutes. If I remember right, the theatrical cut was close to three hours. So it makes sense that they had to cut a bunch. But after you watch Ridley Scott's director cut of that film, you're like, oh, this was way better. I think sometimes it's hard to do historical events justice when you're stuck with a, you know, let's call it somewhere between 120 and 160 minutes time limit. For sure. Yeah, the constraints of the medium are tough to tell a a good history story with a lot of the time and like a rich history story. I remember wanting to really like those movies when I was younger and not really getting them. (laughs) I think Kingdom of Heaven came out out when I was probably like, I want to say a preteen. I don't remember exactly what year it came out, but something like that. And being excited that there was this medieval history epic movie i was like oh this will be very cool i did not understand what was happening in the movie as like a whatever 12 year old i should go back and watch that that would be a good one to do on the podcast or same thing with master and commander a little bit i think i think i'd watched pirates of the caribbean and i was like this will be just like pirates of the caribbean um not really no (laughs) well what do you think is the worst historical movie that you've ever watched and maybe i should add the caveat here there's a lot of movies that we can all agree are really objectionable you know like birth of a nation or if you've ever seen clips from nazi propaganda films that kind of stuff obviously horrible right those are obviously the worst historical movies but in terms of movies that people maybe would not expect you to pick i guess what what are some what are some really bad historical movies okay yeah all right, so I'll give you two. The worst historical movie I've watched start to finish was Pearl Harbor, starring okay. uh, Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett, and I think Michael Bay directed it. And it, like, it was just bad. I remember somebody describing it, whether it was a critic or a friend. It wasn't me. I can't take credit for this. Somebody described it as the Japanese invasion of an American love triangle. And I was like, you know, you're taking this, this epic historical event especially in American, you know, popular memory, you don't need to juice it up, you know, right. you tell that story and it's going to work, but they just couldn't, couldn't help themselves, I guess. And so that one was, that one was really just a, a bad film. And I, and it's really long too. Like you, cha- you know, it's one thing if it was 90 minutes and you could struggle through it, but <laughs> that's another one that's like three hours and it's just terrible. Yeah. And then one that I haven't been able to make it all the way through 
And it's a little bit different because we're not talking about a specific event, but more of a historical time period. I can't get through Gone with the Wind. I don't know if you've ever seen it or tried, but it's way too lost causey for me. I was going to say this one falls under the category of maybe maybe for some people, maybe some people don't realize. But for me, this falls under the category of obviously extremely bad. I mean, yeah, but I mean, like, it's still considered one of the, you know, classic pieces of American cinema by the public. I think I saw something the other day that adjusted for inflation. It is the highest grossing film of all time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is this is one that I I think is actually kind of an interesting case because I think that historians of the Civil War period is roundly agreed that this is a horrible movie and has done a great disservice to people's knowledge of this period. But I think that hasn't really translated to public knowledge completely. So I think there are probably a lot of people that watch it and feel like it's a good film or something like that. I have never actually watched it in its entirety. I don't know. I never saw it growing up. And then I just learned that it was this terrible movie. And frankly, just thought like, why would I, you know, I kind of know what the gist of the movie is. So I'm like, well, why subject myself to this <laughs> terrible take, I guess. That's fair. CU Boulder has a really expansive video library. Mm. And it'd be probably about a year ago. I went in and, and worked my way through kind of like the list of classics. So I watched you know, Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments and Casablanca. Oh, yeah. And I tried Gone with the Wind and I'm like, yeah, I can't do this. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't happening. One of the examples that I came up with is another one that I think sort of falls under this category of historians who study this know that this is quite bad, but I think a lot of people in the public do not, which is Pocahontas. Oh, good call. Yeah. Yeah. Very good call. I often end up teaching or TAing the American History Survey as a grad student, right? Yep. And in the first couple of weeks, we're always talking about some of the sort of events that Pocahontas depicts, you know, early contact between the English and Indigenous people in the early 17th century. And Pocahontas always comes up. I think both because so many people have seen it and, and because it's really the iconic depiction of this period in, in popular culture. So that one has a lot of problems with the, the history it depicts. But I think what makes it so unfortunate is that it teaches young kids those lessons. It's something that people learn as a child and then think they've learned sort of a, a piece of that history. And I think that that makes it like some of the, the myths that it communicates very deeply ingrained. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's actually so when... When I took Katie LaBelle's History and Film, and Pocahontas was one of the films that Katie had us watch, and mm. I hadn't seen it in years, and I watched it, and I'm like, oh my, oh, oh my lord, like this is terrible. I am not a historian of early, you know, early North America, but even I'm sitting there watching it, and, and just based on what I picked up in a few undergrad classes up to that point, I was like, oh, this is horribly inaccurate, and as you said, it's aimed at eight-year-olds, so you know those lessons are getting imparted early. Later in the class, we watched Last of the Mohicans, another mm. Daniel Day-Lewis film, which, yep. you know, has, it, has its flaws and, the, and there's some things wrong with it, but it's not aimed at eight-year-olds and it's a great, like, it's an entertaining, captivating movie that sticks with you after you're, you know, long after you've finished watching it. Yeah, I did an episode of this podcast about Last of the Mohicans uh, a few <laughs> months ago. That's an interesting one. I think the Last of the Mohicans does something that I think will come up in a minute 
maybe in one of my one of my next questions but one of the things that i find very i found very funny about watching the last of the mohicans is it's really interpreting those events through modern american values that's one of, there's there's many there's many issues you know there's a few issues with the movie but one of the issues that i noticed historically is that the characters have this post-American revolution political viewpoint. They sort of view the English as oppressing their liberties and stuff like that, which is, you know, the movie is being set in the 1850s, or sorry, 1750s is a little anachronistic. Which brings me to my next question, which is, you know, what do you think are some things that make a historical movie good or bad? I guess what I'm asking you is when we talk about historical accuracy what does that mean to you yeah and i think this is going to depend on on what our our style of film is whether we're we're looking at a hollywood film that's set in a particular time period yeah or something that's you know closer to a history of a a particular event or you know as as you had said with the the example of the film lincoln which i haven't seen but i think my standards are different for a film like that versus say the hunt for red october which is you know completely fictional in terms of its events but is you know placed into this late cold war period in that case you know for a film like that i'm looking for some thematic consistency that you're not playing fast and loose with i don't know who the president of the united states is at the time Mm -hmm. or something like that whereas you know if we're talking about a, a film that's hewing closer to a particular event I personally, I'm going to have higher standards in terms of, of how I expect it to depict that. Yeah, that's fair. I think one of the things that stands out to me, or, or one of the things that I think about in terms of accuracy that maybe I didn't used to think about before I was a grad student, is that there are certain historical movies, I'm thinking more about the first category you talked about, where they are depicting like a real event or person or something like that okay and sometimes those movies will show you something that in its specific case is true but maybe not a good lesson for the public to take away more generally about history and what i mean by that is a movie where yes this is sort of more or less literally what happened for this particular individual but actually that particular individual is more of an exception in history rather than a rule and a good movie can maybe flag that, but I think sometimes movies like that can be tricky for the public because you watch a movie like that, if it isn't flagged properly, people will be like, oh, well, now I understand this history. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I mean, it's not the exact same thing. It's it's, it's not the same thing, but it's it's a, almost a, a historical cinematic version of, of telling, you know, the, the great man history that gives you that skewed idea of, of what it was like for the 0.1%, not even the 1%. And and you miss out on, on what's going on with virtually almost everyone else. Yeah. And related to this, I wanted to ask you about what are some of your pet peeves in historical movies? Because I feel like I have a couple that are sort of related to this accuracy question. Things that like are just so out of place in terms of like, there's no way that actually happened. And mm. I... I'm, you know, Pearl Harbor has so many flaws and faults, but, you know, the, the probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie, FDR stands up out of his wheelchair and, and you know, starts pounding on the table. Right. 
And like, it's, it's just not a thing. It, that's the kind of thing that'll, that'll physically pull me out of the film. Hmm. I can sit there with a certain level of, of disbelief where I'm just like, okay, this is bad. But that's one of those where, you know, it pulls me out of the film to the point that it takes a while to even get back into it. Yeah, that's fair. A couple of things that stand out to me, and I, and I, sort of, I notice stuff like that too, right? If you see a, and you're like, oh, this, this is not exactly what it would have looked like or things like that. I feel like what actually sort of gets to me sometimes is when they've actually done the look of the history very well aesthetically, but the characters have modern attitudes or values or something like that, right? The surface level history is quite good, maybe in terms of what people, you know, the fashion, the technology, that kind of stuff. But the characters, I don't know, believe in like democracy in the middle ages or, you know, stuff like that. Right. And you're kind of like, this is not really what this would have looked like. Another one that is a peeve for me sometimes, and is, is maybe, I feel like I've sort of softened on this as I've gone through grad school and stuff like that. But when I was younger, one of the things that used to bug me about historical fiction is I found it very tough to draw or understand what the line was between what was accurate and what was not. This is a silly example, but I remember being in high school and reading and then watching the movie of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. And, <laughs> and there's some stuff in that movie that is pretty obviously fiction, right? The vampire hunting. But there's some aspects of what Lincoln's personality was like. And I'm like, how much of this is based on what he was actually like and how much has the author sort of taken liberties with it? I don't know as the as the viewer. So that's something that I think can bother me sometimes is I, I just don't know like exactly what is being made up and what is not. No, that's fair. And I mean, this is kind of the danger with historical fiction broadly is there's just enough smattering of accuracy that you leave and you're like, well, oh man, how much of that's actually true? Now, yeah. for the right person walking under that film, it, maybe it stimulates the intellectual curiosity and the next thing you know, you're reading a history of the Crusades to try and figure out how much of Kingdom of Heaven was accurate. I'm not saying that was me. <laughs> but conversely, though, you might just leave and be like, cool, okay, I know that whole story now. Yep. And, you know, not understand that Ridley Scott pulled several of the main characters from across about 100 years time span and moved some of them through time and space for the purposes of the film. Yeah. I think very few people end up doing that sort of extra step of the sort of research. And I think especially, like, it's easy for people to glom on to those sorts of inaccuracies. Like, you could you could see, like, Richard the Lionheart wasn't really there in this year. He lived, whatever, 30 years earlier or whatever it is. But it is harder for people to realize, yeah, Richard the Lionheart's attitudes on, like, religious freedom in the Holy Land is actually different than it was in the movie because you know that's an even further stretch i feel like that's sort of what i'm saying about people have having different attitudes yeah i gotcha that that makes more sense yeah it's uh because you're not you're not gonna discover the truth of that without actually going and doing some serious reading yeah 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 do you think the way that you watch historical films has changed since you've really dedicated yourself to history <laughs> yeah uh i think I've, i'm probably <laughs> I'm probably more in tune now to thematic and tonal consistency than I was before. Hmm. You know, before I'm the guy that we're making Gladiator for. I, you know, you know, Russell Crowe's famous, are you not entertained? I was entertained. <laughs> um, but 
I a cup was it the first full semester during COVID, I think. I TA'd, or maybe it was the second, whatever, it doesn't matter. I TA'd a, a senior Cold War counterculture class, and the instructor assigned a ton of films. None of them in any way had any historical accuracy on an event, but they were all, you know, about Cold War themes. And we watched 12 Angry Men, In the Heat of the Night, Dr. Strangelove, the uh, Forrest Gump, uh, Rebel Without a Cause. And so I find myself watching now and paying a lot of attention to how they treat the time period in terms of, is it consistent with, you know, what we would expect from the 1950s? You know, In the Heat of the Night does a great job of, you know, portrayed in the, the Cold War South of portraying racial tension, which it has to. If it doesn't, it's a terrible historical film. Yeah. You know, if a film like that just, you know, meanders through with all of its characters getting along great, uh, regardless of race, that's, that's a, you know, something that would jump out at me. So I, I watch differently now in terms of paying attention for tone and theme in a way that I never would have before. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think one thing you're also touching upon is that as historians, I think there are topics that we expect to be addressed in a particular setting, a historical setting that we sort of look for and then look for how the film addresses those topics where maybe when I was younger and just sort of watching historical movies for fun. You would watch it and you would be like, oh, that's a neat story. But you're not necessarily thinking, oh, they really omitted this particular theme that's really important to this period. I think, ironically, I worry less about certain aesthetic choice stuff. I think that when I was younger, historical accuracy meant to me, yeah, getting the look right. And I think that I, I mean... The 17th century shouldn't look like the 20th century or something, right? If they're driving cars around, that would be a problem. But I'm not, I'm not really nearly as worried about it, I think, as maybe I was. Interesting. And what, if you had, I mean, and it might just be a natural evolution of the way you watch film, but have you figured out what prompted that change? I think it is, to me, the, the differences in some of that stuff is kind of it feels more trivial than the sort of argumentative stuff, right? Like, I, I think it's the thing about when I was younger and interested in history, but I didn't really understand argumentation, interpretation, all of that kind of stuff as well. I thought that historical accuracy was like, yeah, okay, this is what history sort of looked like. And this is these are what the events were. And so if you get the look right and you you have the timeline right and like the dates line up properly, then you've got a historically accurate story i think now because academics are particularly interested in what's the argument what is the sort of lesson being imparted here that i'm more i'm almost more applying the way that we read academic books i guess to movies where yeah it would be it would be a problem if uh if an academic book got a couple of its dates wrong but unless it's a really key date or something, those are relatively minor details as opposed to the big picture impression that the book is trying to leave you with. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. All right, good, good, good. I wasn't sure that it would. So, and I was sort of thinking it through as I was saying it. Do you think, and we've sort of touched on this a little bit, do you think it's harder to make good historical fiction or good dramatic nonfiction, like a, like a biopic or something like that? 
I think it's probably, and I have no experience inside of the film industry in any way, shape, or form. So this is the definition of a, of a layman walking in on this topic. I think it's probably harder to do the good biopic style for, for a couple of reasons. I think, you know, you're going to draw some, well, there's overlap, but you're more likely to draw an audience that really is emotionally invested. Mm. So, you know, if they, if they took famous American diplomat, George Kennan, the guy who came up with containment in the, the early, the long telegram, yep. famous guy. And a famous historian wrote a Pulitzer, I think he won a Pulitzer for his biography of him. If they somebody turned around and turned that thousand page monstrosity into a biopic of Kennan, I would go opening night. And I would be furious uh, <laughs> if they screwed up anything facts wise. Mm. Although, you know, I think I'm going to feel similarly when I go see Oppenheimer when that comes out this year. Mm. And that's, that's an actual example of one that I'll be at opening night. And if they play fast and loose with the facts, I'm going to be pretty crusty about it. Whereas, <laughs> you know, if you're just setting a movie down in that historical time and place, like Last of the Mohicans or... I don't know, something set in biblical times or, or whatever the case may be. I think you have more leeway to play with your facts because there's more, I think, more of a, a tacit understanding with your audience that like, hey, guys, this is fiction. I'm trying to entertain you. Where I think educate may not be the right word with the biopic, but like, I think there's there's probably more of that tacit understanding that we need to adhere to historical events as closely as we can. That's fair. I think it's an interesting point that I do feel like when you're talking about a real person who lived or maybe even is still alive, there does feel like some greater level of ethical obligation to not make stuff up about them. Yeah. <laughs> In a way that is different if you're just talking about like, okay, what was France like in the 14th century or something like that? Especially because a lot of biopics are made about people who lived relatively recently. I mean, we have some, there's plenty of biopics about other periods of history, but a lot of biopics are about people who lived in the 20th century. Sure. Maybe their families are still alive and stuff like that if they're not. And so I, I think that's a fair point that it it does feel like you, you should not really just make stuff up about those people, especially if it's, yeah, give it, leaving like a, a misleading impression about the kind of person they were, what their attitudes or values were, or that sort of thing. I think that's a that's a fair point. On the other hand, I guess the advantage of doing something like a biopic is that it does get it. It gives you more of a grounded narrative of events that you can follow, I suppose, from a historical filmmaking perspective that you can sort of trace this person's like career and life. And I think that some of the best biopics are. And I don't know why I'm focusing on biopics specifically, because those are not the only kinds of historical nonfiction movies. But I think of something like the John Adams series, where it's a it's a biography of John Adams, but it's also using John Adams as sort of a way into this bigger history of the American Revolution and the the decades that followed it. And so, so I think the best biopics are films that also will... They may not be intending to teach you. They may be intending to entertain you. But ideally, teach you also something of value about the period in which they're set. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I like that you brought up the Adams one, because I was thinking about this, uh, having watched it and having read David McCullough's biography 
of Adams, which is what HBO adapted. Yep. Did McCullough win a Pulitzer for that one? I can't remember. I know he won. I think he won one for Truman. I don't know. I want to say he did, but I'm yeah, not certain I'm, of that. I'm half certain he won another major award for, for that John Adams book. And HBO was very, very, like, they didn't deviate much from that book. They they hewed pretty close to McCullough's work. But I've got a, a friend here in Boulder who wrote his dissertation on, you know, that time period. His topic was the U.S. repaying its its wartime loans or debts from the Revolutionary War. And he points out that, you know, there's underlying mistakes in McCullough's work. Mm-hmm. You know, things that McCullough's, you know, not discussing or is overemphasizing or you know whatever the case may be and so if you know if that if that source material has an inherent you know for lack of a better word flaw and i'm not trying to pick on mccullough because you know i would love to win one pulitzer award in my life (laughs) but you know if that source material has you know whatever that that small glitch is and you stick you know super close to your source material you know you you import your glitch so to speak but i mean it's still a great series and anybody who has hbo max should watch it yeah, no, this is this is one place where I do feel historians are tough on filmmakers, right? Is that historians can't even agree a lot of the time about what the correct interpretation of a particular thing is. And so to expect a filmmaker to get it right when you don't even agree with your colleagues about what is right is pretty tough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and the... The, the genre there with Adams, you know, it's, it's biopic, but it's also like this multi-part miniseries that just allows you to so much more opportunity to explore. Another one I was thinking about is, it's called The Heavy Water War. And I think it was six parts. It was on Netflix in Canada for a while. I'm not sure if it still is. And it was the story of Norwegian uh, saboteurs who were trying to knock out German heavy water production that was critical for their their version of the Manhattan Project, basically. And it like it's really, really good. Hmm. Multiple episodes, it gets to dig into things, explore different events and and characters. I would love to find it on another streaming service so I can watch it again, because I only watched it the once. Hmm. But remembered it being really good, and it kind of stands out to me as another, like, if you're going to do history and film, so to speak, you know, if you can do it as a miniseries, it gives you, you know, nine hours to play with instead of two and a half. Yeah, I think that it is it is tough to tell a concise story about any of these historical events. I think about something like Kingdom of Heaven. We just talked about how it was really long. The events it's depicting are really complicated and it's got to provide like backstory for the characters and stuff like that, right? So so I I can kind of understand that that is that's a tough assignment to try to like get across the complexity of the crusades when you also have to do a all the sort of storytelling things. And frankly, for most filmmakers, historical accuracy is not their number one priority, right? Their main priority is making a movie that will be entertaining and will sell. And and probably a lot of them care about being true to their artistic vision and stuff like that. But, but the sort of historical accuracy of it is, I don't want to say not a priority at all, but a lower priority. Yeah, and I mean... I have a lot more sympathy actually for filmmakers, whether you're, you know, you're, whether you're the, the script writer or the director or whatever the case may be. I have more sympathy since, and I assume you've had to do this repeatedly already at UT since having to write course syllabi and make those decisions <laughs> on what goes in and what comes out. Yeah. Because 
sometimes there's no good option and you just don't have time to do everything you want to do. And and some things have to end up on the cutting room floor yeah. that are very important, but don't fit with the overall message you're trying to communicate or, or whatever the case may be. And on top of it, you know, there's a really good chance it's going to, it's going to piss somebody off. Like you're going to have, you know, in the case of the filmmaker, somebody's going to leave your movie being like, God, I can't believe you didn't put that in there. Yeah. Or in the case of your course syllabus, you're going to have students who are like, well, I can't believe he didn't teach, like he didn't talk about this enough. Yeah. So yeah. I think, I think I have a little more sympathy now after, you know, writing multiple courses. It's hard once you actually have to start making stuff, right? And then you understand that, yeah, making stuff is hard. <laughs> Life was way easier when I was a sideline critic. Yeah, it's it's easy to it's easy to complain and not have to do it yourself. Yeah, it's fair. Related to that, then speaking of sort of the cutting room floor stuff, are there any historical events or figures that you think would make for a great movie, but haven't really got one yet? I have I've thought of a couple, but but I'll let you go first. You know, this is the one that I've had the most trouble with. So if you if you want to hit me with yours. I've got a couple of ideas bouncing around, but I haven't completely solidified them. Okay. All right. So my first idea, and I've seen people say online, this person's biography would make a fascinating movie. So I, this is not a completely original idea. So there's a, a man named Robert Smalls. I don't, have you, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. Yeah. Okay. So Robert Smalls was born into slavery in South Carolina in the mid-19th century and was during the American Civil War, made to work on a Confederate military transport ship. So he was he was an enslaved ship and harbor worker, essentially. And the, the ship had a bunch of other enslaved people on the crew as well. And at one point, the, the ship pulls into port and, you know, he says like, oh, can our family come, up, come aboard to visit us? Because they were back in their hometown. And the officers, I guess, or whoever, permit this. And... Once their families are aboard, he commandeers the ship and sails it through Confederate waters, past a bunch of Confederate posts and stuff, to Union lines, freeing himself, the crew, their families. The ship is delivered to to the Union forces, and I, I think he ends up... So he ends up joining the Union Navy after this, and I think he ends up serving on the ship that he commandeered because they then employed for the Union Navy later in his life goes on to during reconstruction he founds the South Carolina's branch of the Republican Party he uh, serves multiple terms in the US House of Representatives so I think this, this guy has like a really fascinating story to this sort of biography you could imagine this some elements being like quite exciting right as yeah. escape but I also think that this could be a really good historical movie in terms of one of the things that, as far as I can think of, haven't been as well covered by historical movies is the idea of self-emancipation during the Civil War and enslaved people freeing themselves and, and escaping escaping slavery. And then also, you know, you could use this as a way to talk about the history of Reconstruction and black politicians, but also, you know, I don't know sort of the end of his life as well, but eventually a lot of black politicians get essentially like forced back out of office by white supremacy. So it would be a way to talk about some, some of the high points and then and then sort of following like low points of, of the, the post-Civil War period. 
So I think he would be a really interesting person to make a film about. The other idea that I came up with, which is a little more boring, frankly, is I think that it would be interesting for someone to make a movie about John Tyler. <laughs> let, me, let me explain John Tyler for people who don't know. So John Tyler was William Henry Harrison's vice president, okay? William Henry Harrison was elected president in 1840 and took office in 1841. He served for 30 days and then died. And so Tyler, being his vice president, took over. What I think is interesting about Tyler are two things. One, people don't realize this, but so he was the first vice president to actually go on to assume the office of president because the president had died. And there was actually a political fight about whether whether or not he got to be president. There was essentially a, a fight over, is he some sort of acting president, essentially, and we like hold an election? Or does he just get to be president for the rest of the term? And he really fought to get to be president for the rest of the term, which is what happened. So I feel like that sort of political fight could be interesting. The other aspect of his story that's quite interesting is that nobody liked him from a partisan standpoint. Now, I should clarify, I think John Tyler is kind of a bad guy historically. <laughs> like he's not a he's not a good dude, but I think he's interesting. And part of what is what's interesting about him is that William Henry Harrison was from a different political party than him. And he brought Tyler in to sort of like balance the ticket in some sense, right? And so when Harrison died, Harrison's party didn't want to back Tyler because Tyler wasn't really one of them. And Tyler's own party didn't really want to back him because I, I think they saw him as sort of a traitor to the party. They had other candidates that they thought were more true to their own party and stuff like that. So he has this very weird presidency where no one really likes him. <laughs> so I feel like you could make a, a an interesting political drama about John Tyler, even though he's not, he's not a very important president. He's not that significant, but he's just sort of this odd little story, I guess. Yeah. I, I, I think you're, you're onto something there. I having, I went back, Oh, this was a while ago. I listened to every single episode of American history tellers, American elections, wicked game, which they do one episode for every presidential election in American history and the fallout. So familiar with part of the Tyler story. And, you know, as you're talking about that, it gives me in that same political thriller genre, either the 1876 disputed election that put Hayes into office and oh, ended wow. reconstruction. Because I think, again, you could communicate, you know, if you do the lead up properly to that 1876 election and, and kind of show what reconstruction was was like on the ground and, and how it kind of ends. If you want to go a more... People know who these people, you know, your your audience knows who's, who these people are and they'll come watch the movie, the disputed 1824 election, hmm. the so-called corrupt bargain that kept Andrew Jackson out of office, hmm. speaking of bad dudes. <laughs> yeah. Doing, doing that one. In terms of a longer term story, in my head, if this makes sense, it's like a more historically important Forrest Gump is what I'm thinking about. <laughs> okay. Isabel Wilkerson, who used to write for the New York Times, wrote a book called The Warmth of Other Sons. And it's a history of the Great Migration by following three different people throughout their lives. 
Uh, and I think it would be a fascinating, I don't know how you do it. I'm not sure if you could do it as a film or if you'd have to do it as a, as a, you know, three or six part miniseries to do it properly. But uh, that's kind of the other one thinking in my head is, is, you know, you're following in the case of one of those characters or not characters isn't the right word. In the case of one of those historical actors, she follows him for half a century in, in terms of his story. So it'd be another spot, as I said, that, you know, theoretically a more historically significant Forrest Gump style story that lasts, you know, 30 plus years. Those are good ideas. I like the idea of of something about 1876. I mean, this is this is right in my period that I study. So I'm a little biased, but I've said this, I think, to you before that I feel like Reconstruction is the period that is relative to its significance in American history, the least well understood by the public. So I feel like more material that would be helpful on that would be great. It is kind of, is there, I'm now that you mention it, I'm like, it is kind of surprising that there's no movies I can think of that are really about Andrew Jackson. And, you know, I, I understand why now, obviously, there are not movies yeah. about Andrew Jackson because he's <laughs> he's not a well-remembered figure anymore for good reason. Yeah, can you imagine what, you know, if they had a 1960s biopic of, of Andrew Jackson, what that would look like in 20, you know, watching that now, we'd be like, oh, oh, no. Uh, yes. No. no. Uh, so, yeah, I think it'd be, it would be hard. I mean, you could do a movie on Jackson. It's just you're not going to be able to portray him as a sympathetic figure in almost any way. Yeah. Like it, it's just, there's too much baggage there. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that he's obviously like a really, really important political figure historically. Yeah. I think the key would be not, not trying to make him a sympathetic figure because he is, he is really horrible. <laughs> he's a, he's a bad dude and not in, not in a, that sounded like I would anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. He's not in a he's a bad dude and not in a good way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's a, he's a jerk. And then yeah, that's a good idea about about the great migration. I liked I liked that idea as well. That's another topic that I think is important but not that well understood as well. Yeah, and I mean there's a lot of those. Yeah. You know, another one that came to mind just today, but there's got to be a film on it by now. I don't know. The the Tulsa race riots. Yeah. Actually, sorry, the Tulsa Race Massacre is a better way of phrasing it. Hmm. From, I think, 1920, 1921, hmm. somewhere in there. I don't remember exactly what year it happened. I would think somebody's done a film on it or a documentary by now. But if not, that would be another one that, you know, as somebody, I've even as just, you know, at the U of S in undergrad, by the time I left, I had like 30 credits of U.S. history. And then I came off to, uh, you know, an American school and my coursework here. And I'd never heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre until I listened to a podcast on it. Yeah, like it was never communicated in any of the classes I took, and I was like, "Geez, this is first of all, this is awful, but also like, how the heck don't we know more? Like, yeah. how did I not know about this?" Yeah, that's a good. So point. I feel like there's, and it's tough because you taught you said it like 15 minutes ago. In a lot of cases, filmmakers aren't worried about educating the public; they're you know trying to turn a profit. And if anything, stay close to their own artistic visions. So, you know, which filmmaker is, is you know, out there hunting for that type of story? Yeah, I want to say, I haven't watched it, but I want to say there's a, a recent documentary about that, even though not, a, not like a dramatic depiction, but yeah. Gosh, now I'm thinking of all these ideas for like 19th century 
American history movies. <laughs> you could do like, a mobster movie, but it's about Boss Tweed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or um, I feel like uh, this is really in my own wheelhouse. I feel like you could make a really fascinating movie about the Fenian Brotherhood. That is very much in your wheelhouse. All their, all their sort of odd political infighting amongst themselves and their attempt to invade Canada and stuff like that. I don't know. That might just be me, me rambling. But. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, because it's this is your time period. And I get the impression, and, and I, I might be spitballing a little bit on this. I get the impression that the the way we think about Ulysses S. Grant as president is starting to swing a little bit away from him being this terrible president mm. towards something that's, that's a more forgiving picture of him. Yeah. And I, has anybody, are there, there's gotta be films on him. Yeah. I, that's, that's a good point. I'm not sure. I want to say he's got to be in some of the really bad lost cause movies. Yeah. Yeah those bad interpretations and then i can't think of any really recent ones but i that would be interesting that's an interesting idea it's one of those that i was listening and again listening to a podcast on it and talking about his dedication his attention whatever you want to call it to civil rights of of freed african americans in the, in that reconstruction era, era while he was president obviously you know the the scandals and things like that are i think would have mostly tainted the historical memory of him as president, but it, it'd be interesting to see a, a treatment that moved away from that traditional concern over, you know, the scandal. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, I think one of the reasons why the, yeah, the interpretation is changing is that Ulysses S. Grant attempts to really go after things like the KKK and stuff like that, which, you know, historians now see as, as more important than they, than they did when, you know, they really didn't, cares much about diversity and stuff like that yeah yeah so yeah i think that's a that's a big a big change in how he's been interpreted that would be that would be an interesting movie i was gonna say it's kind of funny we're both we both study american history but we both are canadian so i was trying to think <laughs> yeah. if there's anything anything good from canadian history that you could pull but... well i mean tyler's gonna yell at me for this if there's something out there but like there's got to be something on on riel right or like mm. has anybody done anything recently in film on riel in terms of like a like a dramatic portrayal not a major film at least i i wouldn't be surprised if there's smaller scale films but i don't i don't want to say there isn't one but not that i know of but that would make for a fascinating movie yeah i'm not sure how much people outside of canada know about louis riel but he's this sort of fascinating um leads a resistance against the Canadian government moving into indigenous land and eventually is captured and, and executed by the Canadian government. But he's, he's also quite a character historically, like he believes he's been sent by God to do this and, and that sort of stuff. So, so he would be a fascinating character. I was going to say, I know that media outside of Canada don't care about Canadian history that much. That's fine. I accept that. But you know who would make for a really good movie character for like biopic is probably Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Yeah, yeah, that's he's such a character. It's historically even beside the idea that he's significant, he's just kind of entertaining. And even for people that don't, again, for people who don't know much about Canadian history, a big part of Trudeau's thing. This is this is not the current Prime Minister Trudeau, right? This is his father who was Prime Minister some decades ago. His whole thing was that he was like very camera friendly very entertaining very 
cool, right? Very suave, all that sort of stuff. And I feel like that would translate into an interesting character for a movie. At the same time, you know, very important in the history of Canadian government, the the constitution, all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. One more on the Canadian, uh, and this is more in my wheelhouse as a sports guy, but would also, man, this would sell so well in Quebec. A film, speaking of our historical characters in Canada, a film on the Richard riot in Montreal. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> in, uh, 1955. And for people who are not familiar, Rocket Richard was, you know, for the first half century of the National Hockey League, he's probably the greatest player to ever play. He's a French-Canadian icon. And in a game on, I think it was Valentine's Day, he either punched an official or maybe hit him with his hockey stick. I don't remember. The president of the National Hockey League, who was, you know, Anglo-Canadian, suspended Richard. Uh, I don't remember how long he suspended him for off the top of my head. Might have been for the rest of the season. And the city of Montreal broke out into, into a, a massive riot. Like, and not a not a, a lame riot where, like, one car gets flipped <laughs> over. Like, this was a legit riot. And... The rioters completely ignore the calls for calm and, and, and order until Richard himself, I think over the radio, put out a call for people to, to stop rioting. And they more or less did. Mm. Like his voice stops it. And I think it would be fascinating because it's a, it's a great interplay on, you know, the tension between English and French Canada. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's also this look at, at this, again, historically important and fascinating character. One of the most legendary things about Richard was his temper. And so it, it, I think it would be a lot of a, a lot of fun to watch, and again at the same time instructive. Yeah, I think that's a really good one. I was going to say I think the themes about French English tensions it would be a really good way into that, and just a, and just a, a good story. I think yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Is there anything else you wanted to to mention about historical movies before we wrap up here? Not off the top of my head. I everybody who listens to this needs to go watch Oppenheimer when it comes out. I've read the book that it's that it's based on, and I guess this could be a reading recommendation. Book's called American American Prometheus by Martin Sherwin and Kai Bird, and it's basically the the biography on on Oppenheimer that Christopher Nolan's using for the film. The trailer looks spectacular. It's an A list cast, and the story's great. So it's only you know seven hundred pages. Give it a read, and and then go watch the film. <laughs> it's a casual seven hundred pages. I I want to say when that one. I'm going to I'm going to like re- pro wrestling style call, call him out now when when that one comes out you and uh, and Stephen Langlois our, our other buddy who studies cold war stuff we got to have a podcast where you two can debate that movie against each other. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be down for that. That's uh, I'm I'm as excited for this film as I've been for any like non nerd oh, sorry this is still really nerdy non pop culture nerdy film is this is as excited as i've been in a long time cool i'm looking forward to seeing that one as well all right yeah well thank you so much for for coming and chatting with me good luck with the grading i'll uh, i'll let you get back to it all right thanks Lewis. that's all for today's episode thank you for listening and thanks to kevin for joining me for today's reading recommendation, I'm going to suggest Monica McDonald's book, Recasting History, How CBC Television Has Shaped Canada's Past. While today's conversation mostly focused on movies rather than TV, McDonald's book provides a really fascinating look at the history of TV shows about Canadian history and how they've changed over time. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get the latest episodes in your feed. 
and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram for historical photos related to episodes, new episode announcements, and more. For this episode, I've found some interesting historical photos of films in the making and old movie theaters, and I've put them up, so check those out. We're at Off Campus History on both Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, leaving a review for Off Campus History in your podcast app or telling someone you know about it really helps the show. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, leave a comment in one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. I'm also happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics and to hear from historians who are interested in appearing on a future episode. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history. Mm-hmm.